seated. If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one, hopefully in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Romans chapter 11 on page 890 of that Bible. Uh, No one ever truly appreciates having their time wasted. We want to know what is the reason and the point for the things that we're doing. This is why many of us, myself certainly included, are impatient. We hate to wait for things. And so for many of us, that is simply just wasted time. It seems pointless. It's natural, given the fact that we are but vapors in this world, to want to make sure that we're using the time that we have for things that at least we deem important. So while some of you might think that watching an entire Marvel, the the entire Marvel canon in one shot is a futile waste of time. Some of you just made a mental note for how you're going to spend next weekend. The entertainment is indeed the point. You don't feel like you're wasting it because that's what you wanted to do. But spending time in the Secretary of State's office, I mean, we probably need a little taste of hell every now and then just to keep us on the straight and narrow. We all want to know why we're forced to do the things we do and why we're forced to spend our time the way we are. One of the the best and clearest indications of this to me was tutoring high school math. And when I did that, I had basically two kinds of students who came to me for tutoring. Some of them were advanced and some of them were exceedingly good at math. They would would come in and they would have trouble with this or trouble with that, but but they would come in and, and they never asked me, what is the point of doing this? Even when they were stuck on things, they never came to that question because doing math was fun. It was entertaining or it was a challenge. It, it fed them in some way, even the difficult parts. Now, the students who came in who struggled would inevitably ask me, if I stayed with them long enough, why am I doing this? What, what is the point of putting me through this? And I said, it's, it's just torture. Adults love to see you squirm. They, they thought, this is a waste of my time. I don't understand this. I'm unlikely to pick a career in which algebra is going to be needed. And given how I'm doing it, I hope I don't end up that way. All of that is to say, we've heard over the past couple of weeks of bits and pieces of application from what we're reading. But the majority of what Paul is speaking about has to seem somewhat distant from us. Paul's focused in a pretty particular way, on the salvation or the non-salvation of the Jews. And for us, particularly, this can cause two different problems. First is that there is unlikely to be Jewish people here. Now, I could be wrong, and there could be somebody of Jewish descent here, but it is really unlikely that that is the case. And so it's hard to find how the fate of the Jews is particularly applicable to us. Now, in Rome, that wouldn't have been the case, because in Rome, we know that when Paul wrote this, there were Jews and Gentiles side by side, and it could have been that the Gentiles were the vast majority of people in that church, but there still would have been Jews there. And so, for the Gentiles to care and to love the Jewish people who were there, for them to watch over them, to bear their own burdens, they had to have known something about what is the fate of the Jews. Certainly, it would have been a burden to Jews who became Christians, but that burden isn't really shared by us. Secondly, we can just ask a fairly blunt question, and that is, well, the Jews aren't really particular anymore, are they? I mean, Paul says in Romans 3.29 that, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles as well? 
And in Galatians 3.28, we have the very famous statement that there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that mean that at the very least, focusing on the Jewish people is about the same as focusing on the French or on Zambians or even on a number of Asian people groups? I mean, there are about 14, 15, 16 million Jewish people in the world. Why are we taking up our time focusing on the salvation of those people? I'm not here talking to you about the Jats, which are a people group in northwest India that have about 16 million people, about the same as the number of Jews. We're not going to take our time this morning talking about how they fit into the plan of God, how God might bring salvation to them. Why single out the Jews? Paul has an answer for these questions. And it's not that the Jews themselves are especially important. They're not endowed by their very nature as human beings with something distinct from the rest of us. It is the bare fact that God has chosen them to be important. He has picked them out as special. And so much of his plan, both in the beginning, through the middle, and in the end, revolves around them. And therefore, it is important to us. So let's read Romans 11. We're going to read verses 11 through 32 and see why this eternal fate of the Jews ought to matter to us. Let us read. Romans 11, verse 11, Paul begins by saying this, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Not by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the other branches, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. But then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you they may now also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. This is the word of our God. How should God's plan and concern for the Jewish people impact us? What good does it have for us? In the first place, we want to say that God's plan for the Jews is indeed good for us. It is good for us. Paul begins by asking, have they stumbled in order that they might fall? I love watching America's Funniest Home Videos. I love watching people do dumb things and suffering for those dumb things. And one of the best ones is something I've done before, which makes me sad, but you, you have the bat on the ground and you cycle around the bat to get yourself dizzy and then you try and run and try and kick something and usually you just run directly sideways for whatever reason. Is this what the Jews have done? And they're, and they're striving to attain the righteousness that they think that they need before God. Are they doing nothing but simply spinning around that bat so that when they come up, they do nothing but stumble out of the gate? The picture here is of a race. Paul oftentimes uses this picture of running a race finishing a race well to picture our salvation, that we have to finish the race that is set before us. And his question here is, at some point in time did the Jews trip and stumble so badly that they have fallen in a way that means they have no chance of finishing the race? The problem with even asking this question, even though Paul is clear to say that that's not the case, is that using the word stumble implies something of an accident. You and I don't stumble on purpose. But we notice that it's not just accidental. It hasn't something that's happened to them. In verses 11 and 12, Paul will two times in a row speak of their trespass. He even calls it a failure. It's not just an accident, but it's pointed. It's purposeful. And we would add, indeed, it is sinful. We are reminded that the offer of the gospel is not just an offer, but it is itself a commandment. You are to repent and you are to believe. These Jewish people have spurned the very Messiah who was sent to save them. But Paul's question is kind of particular here. He's asking, what indeed was God's purpose in all of this? I mean, he's already talked about the fact that the reason why the Jews haven't flocked to the gospel is because of the plan of God. He's trying to make understanding come to the Romans, to us indeed, why it is that the, the Jewish people who seem to be best seated to accept Jesus as the Messiah are indeed the ones who have rejected him. Paul's answer so far has been, well, it's either the fault of the Jewish people or it is under the plan of God. If you accept that it's under the plan of God, the question here is, what precisely is that plan? What is Paul, or what is God planning on doing with the Jewish people? The rejection of the Jews by God has led to the gospel then going out to all peoples. Notice what he says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
Now, oftentimes in the plan of God, we expect that God's work is going to happen and that God is going to act because of something that is sort of outside the way nature typically acts and outside of human intervention. We typically call these things miracles, but we are well to be reminded, we do well to be reminded, that sometimes these sorts of plans and purposes of God don't happen in terms of miracles, but through everyday occurrences, God expects for these things to have sort of human intervention and human interaction. That's precisely what we see here. So if you go to the book of Acts, we were told at the very beginning that the disciples were to be the witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. But by the time we come to Acts chapter 6, that circle has increased to include, well, just really Jerusalem. It hasn't haven't gone anywhere. But all of a sudden, this man named Paul rises up. And Stephen gives a speech in the temple, and Paul holds coats while people stone him. And this initial persecution starts to break out upon the church, and what it does is it forces those disciples to spread. The persecution's seemingly limited just to Jerusalem there, and so people flee out. And as people flee out, they take the gospel with them to people who are not Jews as well. Even later on in Acts 13, When Paul himself is not on the side of the Jews, but rather he is on the side of the preaching of the gospel, he has come to Antioch with Barnabas, and he's proclaiming the word of the Lord. And frankly, everybody in Antioch is pretty pumped about it. The Jews are excited to hear him. They they say, hey, come back next Sabbath, and the Gentiles are excited to hear him. But before he gets a chance to, the Jews, likely the Jewish leadership, step up, cause problems, disrupt what Paul is doing, causing Paul to say this in Acts 13. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Luke adds this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. In both of those situations, Paul is instrumental Paul in persecuting the church and sending it out, and Paul then seeing the persecution of Jews and saying, now we're done, we're going to the Gentiles. And Paul looks back at that and he says, this is the plan of God, that the gospel wouldn't just stay with the Jews. And so he brought persecution from the Jews so that it would be pushed out to the Gentiles. But even that, as good as that is for us, is not without a further end. That is to make Israel jealous. He goes on to say, In verse 11, I promise we're going to go faster than this. I know you're like, there's a lot of verses here and you're still on verse 11. We're going to go faster. This is to make Israel jealous, he says. This is what Paul has already mentioned. Back in Romans 10, 19, he has a quote from Moses saying, I will will go out and call on a people to make you jealous. And indeed, they are. If you ever catch a devout Jew and talk to them and say, well, you know, our father Abraham, and you talk about how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are yours. 
they, they would even label this as talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as though they're Christian, which isn't quite true, but yeah, yeah, okay, they're Christian. We'll claim them, and we'll claim Joseph, and we'll claim David and Joshua, have some reservations about Samson, but we'll probably lop him in there as well. If you talk to a devout Jew like that, they will indeed get angry because that's, those are our people. They're not your people. Those are our forefathers. They're not your forefathers. You are taking what is ours. You are, you, are, you are taking it and removing it and making it into something it's not. I completely understand why that kind of language drives them nuts. But the end of such things isn't always just pointless frustration and anger. That jealousy turns into eventually, at some point in time, according to the word of God, a renewal amongst the Jewish people for the love of Christ and for the love of brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that they never knew as they come to Jesus Christ. And so the rejection of the Jews leads to glory of the gospel. That glory of the gospel among the Gentiles leads to the jealousy of the Jews who then come back to Jesus Christ, repent and believe in him. And this leads to the culmination of God's plan. So Paul says this in verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and I think there it's the reconciliation of God and the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I don't think that that simply means that their reconciliation or their acceptance means that God will then regenerate them. I think he literally means life from the dead. That this is the resurrection at the end of all things. This is the culmination of all of God's plan is to bring back a harvest of Jewish people. Salvation of the Jews is the crowning achievement of God's work, the final piece of God's work. So it brings everything to a close. And it means that all things good and glorious have arrived. And that for all of us, our trials, tribulations, our tears, our sorrows, our hardships are done away with, and the resting of the world and the resting of God's people has come. The rejection of the Jews meant the gospel comes to us in full. It is for our good. Their acceptance means the kingdom has finally come to us in full. It is for our good. The plan of God for the Jews ought to matter to you, for it is the centerpiece in God's bringing good to you. Secondly, God's plan for the Jews is humbling for us. It ought to be humbling for us. Paul begins a transition verse in verse 16 there that talks about the holiness of dough and the first fruits that are offered. It's kind of a tough metaphor to crack, and he, he leaves that metaphor and goes to a metaphor of a vine and branches pretty, pretty quickly, or a tree and branches. It is difficult to see exactly what Paul is talking about when he talks about the first fruits. Who are the first fruits? Is Jesus the first fruit? We might want to say that because we have this sort of vine metaphor present in John 15, but Paul here predates John 15, and even if Jesus did say something like that, it seems as though Paul's using it in a completely different way. I think rather what Paul is speaking about are the patriarchs. He's speaking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We get this picked up for us in verse 28, where Paul writes, "...as regards election..." They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. These men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the rest, warts and all, were set aside for the purpose of God. What Paul is saying is if they were set aside for the purposes of God, 
then so were all of their offspring. We are Baptists. Therefore, we're right in our understanding of baptism because we put it right there in our name. And we look at, we look at people who baptize children, and we say, well, okay, you're, you're Christian if you confess rightly and, and all that. You're, you're Christian, but you, you're misunderstanding the point of baptism because children are not members of the covenant and children are not Christians because of their parents' faith. And so we, we kind of lean heavily into that because that's, well, that's kind of our thing. But we can lean so heavily into that that we want to downplay the way in which God typically works through families to bring salvation to others. Somehow, our relationships in families and our relationships with others in that family makes them set aside, specifically made for the purposes of God. This is true even for unbelievers in the family and not just children. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. In a completely different topic and concept, nevertheless, Paul says this, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, clearly, he doesn't use the word holy there to mean impeccably clean and upright moral standing before God. He doesn't even mean saved. What he means is exactly what he meant for the patriarchs, that they are, in a sense, set aside for the purposes and plans of God. Your children have done that, whether for good or ill. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be saved, just as it doesn't mean that the unbelieving husband is going to be saved if you stay with him or the unbelieving wife. It simply means that they have been set aside, they have a special role in the purposes and plans of God. And so, all of the branches were. But this leads all the more, Paul argues, into our pride. Look at what he says in verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So God's got this beautiful cultivated olive tree, and it's growing branches. And God comes in and he saws off some of those branches and he finds a wild olive tree growing somewhere and he plucks it up and he somehow grafts it in. And you can look at the Jewish people and you can say, ah, but you see how, how great and how wonderful the Jews were, but at the same time, God has rejected them so that I might be grafted in. And the thinking can be pretty easily lead into, well, how, how great must I be? Paul warns against our arrogance, and our pride, and thinking that because God has somehow rejected the Jews to bring us in, that that means that we have importance above and beyond the Jewish people. Paul very briefly provides four ways that we can knock down that pride and be humbled by what the Jews have suffered, by what the Jews have done, by simply the plan of God as it accords to the Jews in salvation. First, in verse 18, don't forget the roots support you. You do not support the root. You get to call Abraham your father. That's great. But remember, the example of faith that we have, and one of the greatest examples of faith we have, is from an Israelite. And it's from continual reference of Israelites. It is like building a foundation. The walls do not support the foundation. The foundations support the walls. We are resting on everything that we have recorded in Scripture mostly overwhelmingly from Israelites and Jews. We 
know of the very nature of God, of the plan of God, of the work of God, and how we are to think through these things because of how God has worked through Israelites. We stand on them. They do not rest on us. Paul says, don't forget that. If you think poorly of Israelites, if you look down upon them, don't forget that everything you know about him Almost everything you know about God and everything you might know about the gospel comes through the hands of the Jews or Israelites. Secondly, faith and pride are mutually incompatible, and it would do you well to remember that. Faith and pride are mutually incompatible. They cannot mix. They are oil and water together. Verse 20, Paul agrees with the statement, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He says, that is true. You might want to almost put in there, that is technically correct. And he goes on to make sure that they understand. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud. If we want to talk about faith, we need to understand that faith is sort of the human counterpart to God's election. The purpose of even talking about God's election of us is to highlight the fact that our salvation is solely and only because it is from God. It is God's choice. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will harden whom I harden. So if God has softened you and brought you to the faith, his election is the very thing that tells you it is not because of you. Our faith then is the absolute natural counterpart to that. You are looking outside of yourself. Faith is is the renunciation of yourself, and it is humbly appreciating the work of God and God alone for you. Only faith can do that. How then can you truly believe and say, it is not of my doing, yet not I, but through Christ in me? How can you sing that and then stand prideful over the Jews as though you have done something the Jewish people couldn't, although you have something that the Jewish people don't? Faith and pride are incompatible. What are you prideful in? What have we done that merited God's good favor? Who are we that God should look at us with desire? Faith cannot be reconciled with pride. Therefore, he says, those who lacked faith were rejected. And because they were rejected, Paul's third point in how this ought to humble us is that we ought to fear. The very idea of the Jews being removed because of their lack of faith ought to inspire us in fear. Paul's point is this. If you go to a wild olive tree, which by the way is useless. Wild olive trees weren't good at producing olives. They were worthless at it. The whole point of having cultivated olive trees is so that you wouldn't have to rely on olive trees out in the wild which were wholly inappropriate for actually growing olives. He says, if God were to take something that is wholly inappropriate like that and graft it in and do so by cutting off branches that were supposed to be there, what in the world do you think is going to happen to you if he decides to put the other branches back on? Do you think it's going to be hard to cut you off? Do you think it's going to be hard to, to graft them back in? He says, no, oh, it's easy. Friends, that fear of being cut off ought to guide us in our humility. Pride leads to unbelief. 
Unbelief will lead to you being cut off from the people and even cut off from God. And therefore, you ought to fear God enough to know that it will happen. And to know that it will happen because, Paul says, it already has. It's happened to the Jews. Be humble and fear God. And lastly, Paul then talks about the kindness of God. Not just fearing God in his severity toward those who have fallen in verse 22, but God's kindness to you so that you might continue in his kindness. God's been incredibly kind to you. God took you, who was worthy of nothing but to be burned, and instead has grafted you onto a root that will make you grow and blossom and be good for his kingdom. He has purchased you by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has died for your sin and been raised for your justification. The kindness of God is rich. How can we mock that by looking at the graciousness and the kindness of God and saying, I deserved it? It's a mockery. It's blasphemous. So remember the kindness of God over you. And in faith, not in pride, walk before God. The fate of the Jews and the plan of God ought to humble us. And thirdly, God's plan for the Jews is glorious to us. It is glorious to us. Paul says that there is indeed a mystery. Let me explain to you what precisely this mystery is, because there are certain things that it can be and certain things that it can't be. When Paul talks about there being a mystery, what he means is that there is something now that is revealed that was completely and utterly hidden in the Old Testament. But throughout the ninth chapter, the tenth chapter especially, Paul has continually been talking about all the things that Scripture has already revealed. The rejection of Israel was foretold. The gospel going to the Gentiles was foretold. The gospel being accepted by the Gentiles was foretold. The Jewish people becoming jealous about the Gentiles understanding the gospel was indeed foretold. Even their final acceptance of the gospel was foretold. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. When he says, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and, I will, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's quoting from Isaiah 59 and 29 respectively. And what he means there is, the Jews will be saved, and we know it because Isaiah tells us that. Now, when he says that all Israel will be saved, he doesn't mean that every single Israelite in existence will be saved. Maybe at that time in the future date, that will be true. It certainly doesn't mean it across history, because Paul has argued that that's not the case. But he does mean this, at the very least, that there will be an influx of Jewish people at the end of time that God will bring to himself. The mystery, then, is not that these things will happen. It is how they will happen. Paul goes on to talk about it. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They, they were enemies of the gospel so that the gospel would go to you. But you can't stop there, Paul says. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That God has a particular heart for the Jewish people. I don't by that mean that he has a particular regard necessarily for the state of Israel as it exists today. And I think that people who get those two things mixed up are getting them mixed up. 
But God does have a particular affection for the people of Israel, and there will come a day when he will call that particular affection to bear and bring people back. God has elected them. So the way in which this has gone through, which we've already gone over, that the Gentiles would be accepted after the Israelite rejection, all of that was a mystery. And Paul now is explaining the point of the mystery. It is simply disobedience, which is strange. We tend to think of sin and disobedience in terms of morality, which makes sense. God has a lot of things to say about what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. And so we tend to think about our disobedience in terms of whether we're moral people or not. And that becomes pretty confusing when we look out in the world and we meet people out in the world, not who are ugly, sinful people, because that's kind of what we're set up to expect, but are pretty decent people. They, they love their neighbors. They love one another. They seek to do good to people. They, they give of their time. They give of their money. They, there are people out there who, who, frankly, outshine a number of people within the church who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. If you think of simply disobedience in terms of your morality and how you deal with people on the outside, it can become something of a problem. But the problem with all of that is that what disobedience is, is not just how we relate to others in the world, but it's also how we relate to God. Paul, no doubt, would have known that there were a number of Greek-speaking people who were good people. They, they sought to help those who were in need. They sought to do good when they could. They loved their family, and they loved others outside of their family. They sought political policies that they thought were good for all. There's a number of different checkboxes that you could make and go down, and they would click off a good number of them. Paul knew that as well. But God doesn't want decently moral people who ascribe none of that decency to him. This is the exact problem we found in Romans 1. It wasn't that they were evil at the first and therefore they denied God. Paul starts with the fact that they've denied God. They can be as moral as they think they are, but if they don't give him thanks for the good that they do, if they don't ascribe to him power, majesty, glory, and might, if they don't understand that everything good that they do is but a reflection of that God, there is no true goodness in them. That is a moral failure and a massive one at it. It is not just that they don't treat outsiders well, it's that they don't relate rightly to God. To seek the good as God is good while denying him is a mockery and it is a grave sin. So whether these people are good and virtuous or whether they're grossly immoral, God's salvation then comes to them by pure grace. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve salvation from this God because they don't know this God. They don't deserve salvation from this God because they have not proven themselves good and right before this God. And yet this God shows up and gives them salvation. They don't know him. They say, we've never offered sacrifices to him. We've never burned things for him. We've never called on his name. God says, it's okay. My son has died for you. Come to me. It is quite clear that for the Gentiles, for the Greeks and the Romans, it was all by grace. Would the Jews have thought of themselves this way? Perhaps a good number of them did, but possibly not. Well, the Gentiles would have had this incipient understanding of their own disobedience. The Jews 
probably thought that they had good works, and they thought that they had holiness, and what's more important, they thought that they were rightly related to God. Yet, what is undeniable now is that their rejection through many centuries belies an incredible disobedience to God himself. There is no escape for that for the Jews. When they come to realize that Jesus Christ is everything that he claimed to be, that he is the incarnate God who they thought they had worshipped before, come to them, rejected by them, killed for their sin, raised for their justification, when they come to realize that, there will be no doubt as to the disobedience that was inherent in them the whole time. God has given them over to disobedience so that his glory in being merciful to them might shine all the more, so that it would be recognized by Gentiles who say, why would he call back the Jews who have rejected him? Because his mercy is glorious. It would be apparent to the Jews who say, why would God call us again? Because we have been incredibly disobedient to him. Because God is merciful and it's glorious. Romans 5.15 says it like this. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It abounds. God allows for disobedience so that he can show just how merciful and gracious he is. And their knowledge of their disobedience, the grace of God will shine all the brighter over the Jews in the last days. His long mercy and care for his people will be magnified. And his promises will be shown to be true and come to full completion. And so Paul finishes by saying simply that God consigned everyone, both Jew and Gentile, he consigned them over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. All are disobedient so the mercy of God would shine. We can see how this glory is seen best in the benediction that Paul runs directly into, which is something for our time next week. But it is clear that as Paul comes to the end of this, that he sees in this an unbelievable amount of glory. And that if we rightly understand his words, we ought to as well. The plan of God for the Jews is glorious to us. The Jewish people do indeed occupy a special place in the revelation of God and in his heart and in his plan. And again, we, we're right. It's not because the Jewish people are necessarily or inherently special. They're just... They're normal people. They're no worse and no better than the Irish, than the Jots, than you Americans. I don't mean you as though I'm the exception, us Americans. But it is through these somewhat normal people that God works the salvation of the world. Through them we have promises, the promises, great, glorious promises. Through them we have covenants. Through them, we have wonderful pictures of faith. Through them come the prophets. Through them comes even our Lord Jesus Christ. But here, something else is being shown. The Jewish reception to the gospel is the last stone in the great building of God's temple, just as their rejection was indeed the cornerstone at the first. And therefore, it is good for us to consider these things, that we might be blessed through them and receive good through them that we might be shaped through them and be humbled by them, and that we might praise the work of God and see his glory in them. So, 
While no one wants their time to be wasted, and I certainly don't want to waste yours. And all desire to know what good there is in such things. If we've done our job well, if I've done mine, and you read the word appropriately, I think that we can give an answer for is this good for us to study by saying much in every way. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your work in the lives of the nation of Israel. This work has provided us with more than we think or know. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We would be in the dark without it. It helps to guide and direct our steps to you. It gives us hope and will one day show the greatness of your mercy to all. We pray for that day. We pray for the salvation of all of Israel and the peace of Jerusalem. May these things be done for the good of your people and for the greatness of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would,